Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this week is our producer, Stephen Trader. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Hello, Natalie. It's great to be back with you. You did so well last week. I think, you know, we're just running with it. I thought I, I, <laughs> I was worried I was going to get the hook, you know, I think. Well, and also our executive producer, Amber McKinney, she's busy this week. She'll probably do one one week. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be invited back. It's always fun to talk with you, talk about the Supreme Court. Usually fun, right? Or at least mostly fun. Um, right now, though, I have to say I am I'm aghast and appalled <laughs> because the ABA came out with its like annual civility survey this week. It's today, actually. And while a majority of respondents recognize that Chief Justice Roberts is the chief justice, um, it was like, you know, a slight majority at 59 percent and a sizable portion of respondents at 19% think it's Justice Thomas. <laughs> That's alarming. <laughs> I It just, I, I, you know what? I, I, our podcast is not reaching enough people, I, I think. That's probably what <laughs> like, it is. Yeah, I think yeah. that's what it is. Maybe, yeah. I, I guess we should start with some like basic lessons about, you know, who does what on the Supreme Court. But that's a, that's a sizable number of people who, and these are... These are legal professionals, correct? No, no, no. This is not legal oh. professionals. So these are lay people that, okay. that were, were surveyed. Um, and, you know, another 6% actually thought it was Justice Jackson, the newest member of the court. And that, like 11% were like, just like, I don't know, undecided. <laughs> so it, they were they were honest that they weren't sure. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Uh, every time a new justice joins the court, they automatically become the leader. I, that's That's how it works. You know what? That would be an interesting way to, to do it. I think. Right. Right. Maybe, maybe we should play with that. Um, you know what? That's that's a that's a question though for Congress, um, right? And speaking of, <laughs> great transition. Speaking of questions for Congress by Congress, the Chief Justice. We had some news this week. So yeah, we have a quick update on the growing call for ethics reform at the high court. Last week at the end of our episode, we mentioned that Chief Justice Roberts had been invited to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee about how the court handles ethics issues. Obviously, this is coming after we've seen um, some reporting regarding Justice Thomas um, and just his relationship with certain um, lobbyists uh, and also the Dobbs leak last year and just in general, um, the growing spotlight on the fact that the justices of the highest court in the land are not held to as stringent an ethics code as judges in lower courts. Yeah, we we were talking about this a little bit off the air yesterday during our production meeting. And, you know, we've, we've both worked at Law 360 for a long time. And I don't know if it's recency bias or not, but it just seems like in the past couple of years, there's been so many different things that have bubbled up related to ethics or questioning what the justices are doing. It seems like there is a like a real uptick in these types of situations. So I, I can understand why suddenly, you know, there's a big push to have the chief justice come in and, and maybe talk about some of these things. But what what ended up happening? You're exactly right. And, and then, you know, it's a rare move, though, right, for a congressional committee to invite a chief justice to come talk. Uh, and Justice Roberts thought that, too, that it was 
rare. <laughs> and in declining uh, the invitation, uh, he noted that, you know, Senate testimony from a chief justice is um, exceedingly rare, as one might expect in light of separation of powers concerns and the importance of preserving judicial independence. He noted in his letter, you know, the Senate has only, like, heard from a chief justice twice before in 1921 and 1935 and both of them had to do with administrative issues now in declining the invitation he did include a statement on ethics and principles that all the justices signed where they kind of reaffirmed and restated the ethical principles that they adhere to as supreme court justices um so you know perhaps this could have been all cut and dry justice gets an invitation declines Except in between the invitation and his RSVP of no, uh, there was another report. Uh, Earlier on Tuesday, Politico reported that Justice Gorsuch had failed to disclose that a Colorado property he partially owned um, and that around the time he was being confirmed as justice was sold, was sold to Greenberg Charig's CEO. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting story that broke. And um, the, the facts in it are... You know, they, they supposedly it was on the market for a long time. The price had dropped a few times. It's sounds like a really nice property out in Colorado. You know, we've all been there trying to sell our 3,000 square foot log cabin in the mountains. Sometimes you just can't get rid of it. I have uh, not. I, I would like to be there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why didn't we go in on this property? <laughs> but so, I mean, it seems like it, it could be just a coincidence. The circumstances, either way, it doesn't look great. I think was yes. the big takeaway. So, so I, I will say Greenberg Charg CEO has come out and said, hey, when I b- put in the offer, I had no idea Justice Gorsuch was part of this partnership that held the property. It was like him and two other people. And like there was a, a shell, com- like a company that basically owned the property. Um, and, and he didn't realize this until afterwards, until after they were going through the proceedings to buy the property. Right. And and I think the CEO has been a longtime Denver resident. He lives out there. So it's not like it was uh, some action that was taken, you know, moving across just to buy Justice Gorsuch's house. But yeah. And and Justice Gorsuch, in his defense, did report the earnings from the real estate deal, did report the real estate deal. He just did not disclose the identity of the purchaser, which was supposed to have happened. Um, Obviously, though, this just adds to the drumbeat of calls for ethics reform of the court. Um, I will say on Wednesday, the Senate did see this first bipartisan bill that would require the justices to write and adopt a formal code of conduct. Um, that proposal uh, would give a pu- the public an opportunity to file ethics complaints against the Supreme Court, notably would grant also the court authority to use outside investigators when necessary, such as like the Dobbs leak. So, um, yeah, Further movement <laughs> happening here uh, with with this kind of side story we've been following throughout the term. Right. We'll we'll see if it gains any traction. And, you know, obviously the calls are are going to continue and Congress is trying to do something or trying to look into it. So, yeah, we'll we'll keep following it. As far as other stuff going on at the court, we did not get any opinions this week. So we still have. Oh, I think we, we've got a long three months ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we did get some orders, actually. So before they uh, get the plate clean, they're already taking up cases uh, for next term and uh, also declining some cases. So um, 
we had one of each. Natalie, which would you like to start with this week? Why don't we start with the one that they agreed to take up, the notable one? Okay, good. That, yeah. That's all I have it in the script, so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's right. So on Monday, the justices agreed to hear two separate appeals, both related to public officials blocking individuals from their Facebook pages. So the idea here is that if the page represents some type of state-sponsored public-facing forum, and then an elected official shuts someone out of that public discourse, that's a big no-no. That pesky old constitution says you can't do that. So... One of these cases stems from the Ninth Circuit, which last year decided that two members of the Poway Unified School District Board of Trustees out in California had violated the First Amendment by blocking two constituents who happened to be parents with kids that were in the school district. The Ninth Circuit said the trustees presented their social media pages as belonging to government officials, and they use those pages to post public notifications and to solicit public feedback. So blocking the parents was one of those state-sponsored actions, and it you know took away the free speech rights of the parents. And then the second case that the justices agreed to hear, this one comes out of the Sixth Circuit, and almost the exact opposite happened. There was a Michigan resident who went through a similar situation. A city official blocked him on Facebook, and there was an alleged First Amendment violation, but the Sixth Circuit actually disagreed and said that the it, it was okay. At the time, the Sixth Circuit said that even though the city official used his Facebook page to post about his job, that didn't transform his personal Facebook page into official action. And it wasn't really closely intertwined with his office or what he was doing. I love a good circuit split. <laughs> there, it, it is a good circuit split. There's been a lot of different rulings on this. And I think the situation is such that there's a lot of different variations for how this plays out in social media. So the Fourth Circuit back in 2019 found that a, a public official retained control of her Facebook account. So she actually violated the First Amendment by blocking somebody. The Second Circuit, and I totally forgot that this case happened and kind of laughed about it when I read about it, but back in 2019, they had the case with uh, then-President Donald Trump, who was blocking followers on Twitter that were critical of him and his policies, and the I Second Circuit, that. right, and the Second Circuit said that he was using that at, in his official capacity. So um, we'll talk about that case in a second. But the Eighth Circuit, most recently in 2021... Um, actually found that a Missouri state representative was totally fine to block a constituent on Twitter because the account had previously been private and she was kind of using it as like a more of like a public newsletter. So um, back to that Second Circuit case, that actually made its way up to the Supreme Court and it ended up being moot in 2021 because um, Trump was no longer president. So our senior reporter, Tiffany Hugh, uh, she wrote a great feature story this week. She talked to some experts who kind of pointed out, like I was saying earlier, there is a lot of variations for how this plays out in the public. And so it's it's really tough to tell if the justices are going to be able to draw like a bright line rule. But one thing that they noted was if the Supreme Court was to go the way of the Ninth Circuit and kind of be a little bit more lenient towards, you know, First Amendment violations, that could really open the door. Like, there's a lot of these cases that are potentially pending, so you could see a lot of litigation bubbling up. So 
I think that's going to be an interesting one that we're going to obviously be tracking next term and uh, we'll see what they say. Yeah, that I feel like already kind of jumps up to at least like the top five of next term's uh, cases. Yeah, it's some high stakes. Now, Stephen, you mentioned that there was also one that made a lot of news for not being taken up. That's right. It was not taken up on Monday. The court refused to weigh in on whether climate change suits brought by state and local governments against fossil fuel companies belong in federal court, which means that they are going to proceed in state and local court. That's a that's a big win for local governments and a big loss for several, you know, these big name companies who have been hauled into local courts and accused of promoting fossil fuels while concealing their environmental risks. Cities have claimed state law violations like nuisance, trespass, and consumer fraud. And companies like Exxon have been attempting to get these cases moved to the federal level, and they've pretty consistently been remanded, and several appeals courts have agreed with those remands. So the company's core argument essentially says that when claims are related to greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, that makes them a matter of federal common law and that there's a circuit split um, because notably the Second Circuit had previously dismissed a climate suit filed by New York City. But the state and local governments say that there is actually no split and, and their complaints just don't raise any federal issue. They're talking about state law violations. Uh, Back in October, when the Supreme Court was thinking about this, they actually asked the federal government to weigh in, and the Biden administration answered in March that it didn't see any federal question presented, only alleged state law claims. Notably, on Monday, Justice Kavanaugh said he would have granted cert in the case, but he didn't give a reason, and Justice Alito didn't take part in the consideration. And so, I mean, essentially, that means full steam ahead for climate torts. Uh, at the state and local level in those local courts. Uh, Once again, we had a senior reporter all over this, our energy reporter, Keith Goldberg. Experts he talked to said that it was a crucial threshold for these local governments. And it's always a tough call when you're talking about cert grants. I mean, it's not like the Supreme Court is afraid to take on environmental issues, but there wasn't four justices comfortable at this moment inserting themselves into these state climate tort litigation. Too often, I, I think we, we see, you know, the justices always talking about like, just not the right vehicle, just not the right case, right? So right. it's possible that this was just not the right case right. for them to be grappling with this issue. And it's possible they'll be looking at in the pipeline for more, but obviously definitely a big decision um, for now, at least for the litigators who are involved in these cases. Right. Yep. Those are going to, those are going to proceed. So that's kind of what's happening with the court next term. But I know you have an update on some oral arguments that happened the, the last week of oral arguments this week at the court. Yeah, that's right. So it was the last week of oral arguments. I feel like we've crossed a major threshold here. <laughs> we've made it. Yeah, we made um, it. We made it. To round out um, this this week, the justice heard four sets of arguments. Um, I really want to talk about one of the ones that was argued on Monday, though. It's admittedly a bit wonky. It's kind of a bit under the radar. But it's one that a lot of lawyers are watching because it's likely to impact how they do business before an appeals court. Right. This, this, this seemed like a real lawyer's lawyer case say, yes. and, a, and a very yes. important one very very much so so the case is dupree versus younger 
And the question it raises is, do legal arguments raised at the summary judgment stage have to be reasserted after trial or at trial to be preserved for appeal? Now, unsurprisingly, given this is, you know, before the Supreme Court, there's a circuit split on this question, right? Uh, Eight circuit courts say you do not have to reassert legal issues to preserve them, but a minority of circuits do require some additional steps that you have to do in order to preserve issues for appeal. One of those is the Fourth Circuit, which handled the Dupree case on appeal. Now, just for a very quick backstory, um, Neil Dupree is a corrections officer who has been accused of assaulting inmate Kevin Younger. So the underlying suit here is a civil rights suit. At summary judgment, Dupree had argued that the case should have been thrown out initially because of Younger's failure to exhaust administrative remedies. The lower court did not rule in his favor on that. And the case proceeded to trial where Dupree was found to be at fault. Now, at appeal, though, the Fourth Circuit declined to review that argument that the case should never have been heard because Dupree did not reassert it at trial. So basically, he would, yeah, so he would have had to take all those claims at summary judgment. Normally, appeals courts would consider it as a whole, but in this case, they did not. And so yeah. I'd be very curious what the justice thought about this. So the overall tone is that seems like the justices might be leaning towards not requiring this type of preservation in what's called a Rule 50 motion for judgment. Like there, you don't have to kind of like input a sentence here to preserve it, basically, in order to later have it for the for your appeals. Really, this was an interesting set of arguments, though, I think, because it kind of gives you a peek at how some of the justices who have served on trial court benches think about trial practices. Right. That is really interesting. There's They, they have the background there, so they, they know the details. Yeah. So, so they came out. They're like, they were like, you know, really, I, I, I it was it was a good conversation, I think, uh, an interesting conversation for anyone who, who practices um, or is interested in trial courts. Um, Justice Jackson, who was a D.C. district judge before joining the court, she noted um, she would have been annoyed <laughs> as a trial judge if these litigants were kept trying to re-raise issues she already ruled on um, in an earlier part of the case. Um, and Justice Sotomayor, who served in the SDNY and the Second Circuit benches, you know, she also questioned why does the trial court, why would they want to hear evidence on a side issue that's already ruled on at trial? Um, when you're going to focus on the main issue in, in this case, whether Younger was assaulted at trial. Now, Justice Neil Gorsuch, though, he was the biggest skeptic of, of Dupree's arguments, and he really questioned why his legal team didn't make a proffer of evidence for that argument at trial. Uh, he noted that in his own days, uh, he would have taken the, quote, better safe than sorry approach. So it was, it was interesting to see, like, how they were, they were looking at these arguments, just given their own backgrounds. Um, now, in talking about Justice Gorsuch's conversation at our arguments, I think it's a good time to note that the question at hand about preserving this argument from Dupree um, also centers on the fact that it's considered a purely legal argument. And what exactly does that mean? So in layman's terms, it basically means that it's a decision that in no way was impacted by what happened at trial, right? So here the trial focused on whether Dupree assaulted Younger and not whether Younger exhausted his administrative remedies. So going back to Justice Jackson Sotomayor's comments, the trial court really wouldn't have wanted to like waste time and resources rehearing this summary judgment issue at trial. And obviously Dupree's arguing like, so we didn't bring it up 
But now we want to bring it back up when we go to the Fourth Circuit. Now, Justice Gorsuch, though, noted that really only a small number of cases truly deal with like these kind of purely legal issues. Um, So he questioned if this case was the right vehicle to decide this preservation question. um, And he suggested the court might even dismiss the cases improvidently granted, uh, though he later kind of pulled back from that statement as as he went forward in in arguments. It's obviously going to affect how how trial court proceedings play out in the future. So, I mean, that it's going to be maybe not exactly the most high profile public facing case, but a very important one for, you know, how how attorneys operate at trials. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So we'll definitely be one of the ones that we're watching as we wait for the pile of opinions to reach us. Um, Before we close out, though, I I did also think it's worth noting that the very last argument of the session was well-known Supreme Court advocate Neil Kochel's 50th oral arguments. So big milestone. Kudos to him, um, though. It did not go well. <laughs> it's, it's we we enjoy Neil. We've had him on the show before. Very nice to talk to. Yeah, big big milestone yesterday in the court. And then I feel like on social media afterwards, and just I got a chance to listen to this argument, and it seemed like it went pretty tough. And sometimes you just have a day like that at the court. I guess. Yeah, he he just had a rough day. It was a rough argument session. And look, I, I think he had a hard hill to climb, right? In the case, he's representing a county against a little old 94-year-old lady who right. was arguing that the county wrongfully took and sold her home over unpaid taxes, sold the home for like 40000 which was much more than her unpaid taxes, and kept all the money. <laughs> this just in and of itself was a fascinating case. And I think that there was um, some good conversation about the takings clause. And then when Katyal was arguing on behalf of the county, there was a point when he brought up the statute of Gloucester from 1272. And Justice Gorsuch just straight up was like, I have no idea why I would care about that in this case. <laughs> and I feel like that was kind of the tone for like most of the justices talking to talking to Neil. Yeah, it was hard optics and it just seemed like he maybe kind of lost his footing a bit when the justices were really trying to like center the arguments over like how the county's windfall might violate the Fifth Amendment's takings clause. And it was just it was it was a rough rough argument session, um, but big milestone, right? Fifty, like that's that's a feat, I think, for any Supreme Court lawyer. So. If you've been arguing at the Supreme Court for fifty arguments, I'm sure you've had some good days and some bad days, and so I'm sure that he's going to bounce back. And I mean, we'll see what happens in the case, but um, yeah, I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna see him again at the Supreme Court. So that that was a fun one to talk about, and. Did we cover everything, Natalie? I think that just about does it, right? I think that does it, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We'll be paying attention, looking out for those opinions, and thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Thanks also to reporters who contributed to this podcast, Tiffany Hu, Jess Koshtangle, James Arkin, and Keith Goldberg. Music for the show comes from Thunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Oh, and please, I just review. 